Welcome to this CMS Pensions Lawcast on the topic of diversity and inclusion. I'm Keith Webster and I have the privilege of being a partner in the wonderful pensions team at CMS. I'm joined today by Sarah Horan and Hadassah Shulman. Sarah is a director of professional trustee company ITS and she's very well qualified to talk on this topic given her experience of working with schemes of all sizes, both as a trustee but also previously as part of a scheme executive and as an advisor. And she's also on the Association of Professional Pension Trustees DNI Working Group. Hadassah is a, one of my colleagues in the CMS Pensions team. As well as being a very experienced pensions lawyer, Hadassah is a member of the Pensions Regulators DNI Working Group, and she co-chairs the Practical Tools subgroup. This is our second lawcast looking at diversity and inclusion issues in the context of pension schemes. The first one on this topic, which is episode 29, looked at the legal requirements relating to diversity and the pensions regulators increasing focus on this issue and it gave an overview of where diversity and inclusion issues come up when running a pension scheme. In this episode we're going to look in a little more detail at how we are seeing diversity and inclusion change how pension schemes are operating in a particular couple of specific areas. The first of those is around trustee selection. Perhaps Sarah I can start by asking about what your experience is here. I, I believe you and colleagues at IETS have seen quite a lot of tenders for new professional trustee roles over the last couple of years. Are you seeing diversity and inclusion feed through into that procurement process? And if so, how? Yes, and, and thank you, Keith. Uh, yes, we are seeing diversity and inclusion being asked more frequently in relation to both co-director director roles and also roles as professional corporate sole trustees. Uh, this is often driven by the sponsor's approach to DNI. For co-trustee director roles, the focus tends to be around finding an individual who brings diversity to the board. Whereas for sole trustee roles, the focus is on the diversity within the trustee firm and how this can bring added value. For example, what access there is within a trustee firm to different expertise and experience and, and how that brings rigour and breadth to the role. And so if there's that focus on the professional trustee, are you seeing boards also looking across the whole board at their own diversity and inclusion? Yes, definitely. And, and that's happening in a variety of ways. So in relation to board composition, some trustees are undertaking a skills gap analysis to address their current diversity and the analysis um, from that skills gap analysis is then helping boards to recruit new trustees to address the gaps that they've identified. Also, board effectiveness reviews can help identify ways to make the board more inclusive. For example, I've seen a review where one of the outcomes identified was that the chair had a key role in proactively inviting comments from around the room and so making it easier for everybody, including those less experienced trustees, um, able to contribute to the discussions. And Hadassah, perhaps turning to, to you, most pension schemes need to have member-nominated trustees or member-nominated directors. How much flexibility do trustee boards have to take diversity and inclusion into account when member-nominated trustees are appointed? 
I think the starting point has to be whether you have sufficient applicants to be taking this into account. We all know schemes who really struggle to get any um, people nominating themselves or other people, let alone having a sufficient pool of people to actually consider diversity and inclusion. Assuming you've got that, that pool of people to look at, um, whilst we're not talking about going as far as positive discrimination, that's certainly not not something we'd advocate. It's certainly not only permissible, but probably advantageous to look at the sort of diversity backgrounds of the pool that you've got. Whereas with professional trustees, you might well be looking with someone with a particular set of experience in pensions. Your member-nominated trustees probably don't have any experience in pensions um, unless it's someone standing for re-election. So the key advantage that they can often bring is a different viewpoint to the table that you don't already have on the trustee board. Um, and I think it may be worth looking at how you're appointing member-nominated trustees. So you've got a, a choice between election and selection and selection allows the trustee boards to really look at what experience they've got and see if one of the applicants can add something different whereas election you've got far less control over that process um, now that's not to say that for all schemes selection will be a way forward but it's certainly an option to consider if you're looking at how you might bring more diversity through your mnt process Thank you. And Sarah, have you seen any member nominated trustee recruitment approaches that have really worked to get a more diverse set of applicants? As Hadassah has already mentioned, I've also seen schemes move from an election process to a selection of MNDs and that um, has really helped um, in giving the trustees the opportunity to select candidates who are most suitable for the role and can bring that diversity. I've also seen schemes review their communications, inviting members to put themselves forward as MNDs to make those communications more engaging and to be explicitly clear that they're looking for candidates from diverse backgrounds. And on a practical note, I've seen um, as part of the nomination process, schemes offer an initial induction session and that really helps to demystify the role for the potential candidates and giving them the confidence to put themselves forward for nomination. And so generating a, a greater pool um, that can then be uh, that the final candidates can be selected from. Thank you. And Adessa, for most schemes, member nominated trustees are only a third of the board. So the, the other two thirds will have a bigger impact on ultimately how diverse a board is. Do, do trustee boards have the same sort of flexibility to take diversity into account when company trustees are appointed? I think in practice this is much harder because ultimately it's up to the employer to choose who they appoint to the board. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible and certainly having an open dialogue with the employer about what skills and backgrounds might be really advantageous to the trustee board um, is really important. And actually a lot of employers now have their own diversity and inclusion strategy and they, it might be a really good opportunity for them to enhance what they're doing internally for example um, if they've got a strategy to try and get more people having experience of being on boards actually sitting on the trustee board is a really great way to start building up a pool of people with some new experiences 
Having said that, there might be a reason you want a specific person in the company. So, for example, you might really want someone from the finance team to help you understand the covenant or um, what's really going on in the employer. So it won't always be at the forefront of um, the selection of company company nominated directors, but it's certainly still a really important part of that decision making process to making sure that you've got the widest variety of skills and viewpoints that you can to help make those really key decisions. Thank you. And, and Sarah, we, we we all know that the role of a trustee is complicated and it takes trustees, particularly lay trustees, some time to, to get up to speed. And I think that can lead people to stay in the role for, for a long time. And that, that creates a risk of what people sometimes call group think, you know, that the, the mindset of the board isn't sufficiently diverse. I think in other areas, you know, listed companies and the like, they tend to have maximum terms of office and the like. Is that something you're seeing any trustee boards starting to introduce? Typically schemes limit the term of office for member nominated trustees at say three or four years and then there's often a limit on the number of terms an MND can act of maybe two or three terms. So that is um, that does help to address that concern that you've mentioned. It's much less common for there to be a, a maximum of term of office for employer nominated directors. Um, but typically due to business demands, turnover in employer nominated directors can often be relatively high. So um, it's clearly less of an issue. I, I guess um, one of the other factors that trustees should try and do in thinking about um, these transitions is to, wherever possible, try and anticipate and avoid peaks of changes on the board. So where there are terms of office in place, have those on a staggered basis uh, so that that maintains that continuity on the board and avoids too much change at any one point in time. Thank you. Perhaps now we could move on to look at another area where diversity and inclusion is, is very important, which is member communications. I think it's probably an area that has perhaps had less of a focus than, than trustee selection, but has the potential to have a much bigger impact on how successful a scheme is at providing good retirement outcomes. And Hadassah, perhaps I can start by asking you, what are the legal obligations on trustees to take diversity characteristics into account when providing communications and services to members? So the starting point for legal obligations here is the Equality Act 2010 which provides that trustees can't discriminate on the grounds of protected characteristics when carrying out any scheme functions um, and providing communications and member services is quite clearly one of the scheme functions. Um, for anyone who might have missed our last lawcast where we talked through the protected characteristics, just a quick reminder of what those are. They are age, disability, gender reassignment, marital status, pregnancy, race, religion or belief and sex. However, there's also the general trust law duty to look out for members' interests, which I think actually expands the obligation to consider the diversity of your members to include other characteristics, for example, socioeconomic background, levels of education that can really feed through into your approach to communications. So examples of how this might change the way you look at communications as a trustee board, accessibility is 
is clearly vital um, to make sure that you're not discriminating against members who might have difficulty in accessing, for example, um, a letter. If you just send it out written in English, you might want to find um, a way of sending out braille communications or um, in different languages. If, for example, you know you have a large population who speak a different language. Trustees running specific comms exercises, um, for example, closure to accrual or pie exercise, might want to think about the timing of any um, communication exercises or particularly roadshows to see if there are any religious occasions that might prevent some members from coming along and actually gaining the same understanding. And also thinking about the form of communication. So um, are you just sending a letter or could you also send a video explaining something? Because we know that people learn in different ways. Um, and it will vary depending on the membership of your scheme, which of these things are more important and can make more of an impact to your members. Thank you. And, and, and given all that and the, the importance, obviously, of members understanding their benefits, um, and I guess also given the fact that quite a lot of pension schemes, the, the actual benefits themselves are not that inclusive. There's quite a focus on legal spouse, for example, in lots of schemes. Are you seeing an increase in DNI coming through in member complaints and how complaints are argued? Definitely. It's not to say members necessarily identify their complaints in that way. Um, they tend to just explain it uh, from their own point of view without necessarily attaching labels that we as an industry put on it. But certainly discrimination type complaints are coming through uh, more and more as people are becoming more aware just as part of their general um, experience of the world that actually you can complain about these things it's not fair to be treated differently so some of the ones we've seen coming through in particular are women who've been prevented from taking their pension over GMP age in ways that a man wouldn't be prevented from doing at the same age um, an administrator repeatedly misgendering a member who'd informed them that they were trans and should no longer be referred to the gender they were assigned at birth um, we've also had complaints linked to um, the historic treatment of uh, maternity leave. So um, a woman who didn't qualify for a preserved pension because of a six month gap for maternity leave, who would otherwise have done if she hadn't had that, that break for parental leave. So there's lots of different ways that this can feed through into to complaints. And I suspect, particularly with the regulator now making more of it, um, we're going to see more complaints in this area. Thank you. And Sarah, from what you're seeing with your clients, do you think diversity and inclusion is considered enough in member communications? And what else could schemes be thinking about in this area? There is some really good work going on, um, but I do think collectively as an industry, we can do more. Um, as we've already talked about, trustees should have a clear communication strategy and that should identify the key messages and the objective of each communication. And as part of developing that strategy, it's really important that the, the trustees understand and reflect the needs and key concerns of their membership. And that can include members' preference for how they want to receive communications. And the trustee sponsor may provide some useful insight here and uh, that they've gained from their experience of communicating with their diverse workforce. The trustees need to consider the 
method of communication that will be most effective for the members. And paper communications issued by post still have their place, but schemes are increasingly looking at more innovative routes. And as Hadassah has mentioned, video communications, video benefit statements are often very well received and can provide information in a very accessible way to a whole range of members. Thank you. Perhaps now move on to the final area I'd like to cover, which is looking at advisors. Um, clearly, advisors play an important role in helping trustees run their their scheme. And so the you know the diversity of an advisor or including a fund manager can have have an impact. Sarah, you've obviously seen this from both the trustee side and the advisor side. Are you seeing trustee boards taking more notice of the company's diversity and inclusion approach when they're selecting advisors and fund managers? I think you're absolutely right that advisors play a key role in bringing diversity to a trustee board and particularly in challenging that group think and sharing their experience of what's worked well for other schemes. Trustees do look for advisors who can bring this diversity of thought to the board. I think trustees are starting to take account of advisory firms' own approach to DNI. But I think that is likely to be focused on seeing that approach in action and then considering what added value this brings to the trustee board. Thank you. And then perhaps a final question for the day to, to Hadassah. On, on your sort of regulator working group, is this something you're seeing the regulator is looking at? Yes, definitely. And I think the role of advisors is certainly something we've talked about a lot because um, the regulator is conscious that we've got trustee boards of different sizes. And if you've got a trustee board of 12, you might be able to come up with a really diverse and inclusive board strategy just amongst the trustees. If you've got a board of three, um, it's much more difficult to do that. And so um, there's very much a focus on what can advisors be doing to help trustee boards um, bring more diversity of thought into their, their thinking. Um, and I certainly think we're going to see more of the regulator looking at this through things like the own risk assessment that's going to be coming through shortly. What are you considering the risks of groupthink as part of your risk management? And that will feed through into um, those sorts of regulatory reviews, um, even if there isn't a specific DNI box to the tick. Thank you. So I think it's clear that diversity and inclusion is going to continue to be a developing area of focus for pension schemes. And I hope today's pensions lawcast has provided you with some helpful insights into what we are seeing in the industry and some steps you could perhaps take with your, your own schemes. You can find all 32 of our CMS pensions lawcasts on our website, cms.law. And please watch out for the next episode, which looks at some of the new requirements of the Pension Schemes Act, which is due out on the 9th of November. That just leaves it to me to thank my colleague, Hadassah Shulman, for her incisive comments, and in particular to thank Sarah Horan from ITS for joining us today and sharing the benefit of her experience when dealing with diversity and inclusion in running her pension schemes. And finally, thank you all for, for joining this CMS Pensions Lawcast. I hope you found it interesting and helpful.